Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Saturday, July 10th, I am once again out for a walk here in the courtyard of St. Mary's Parish, our little, uh, our little piece of heaven here in downtown Eugene. And right now I'm marveling at some of the flowers that are blooming here. It's been a while since I've been out here. We've got beautiful red roses that are in bloom, which I don't know, seems out of season, but I don't know the first thing really about roses, so maybe this is exactly the season, I don't know. But it seems like, it seems like they were blooming last year in October around the Feast of St. Therese. I know I was, I remember I was doing a video uh, novena and these roses were a beautiful backdrop for some of those recordings. And then, uh, I don't know exactly, I mean, they, they obviously disappeared over the winter and I don't know when they've come back, but anyway, they're in full bloom out here now. And there's some lovely white sort of ground cover flowers around the base of the statue of Our Lady and uh, some other beautiful flowers that I'm sure some of you uh, more adept gardeners would be able to name. I don't know what these are, but there's a lovely variety here around the feet of Mary, which is most fitting. And it's a lovely time to be outside right now. We've got some nice shade here, and uh, there's an evening breeze, which is very pleasant. I haven't really had a chance to be outside much today, so I'm enjoying, although I don't really have time to get out and do any hiking, which I sometimes like to do of an evening. I'm enjoying at least having a little stroll around here, <laughs> here in our courtyard. It's been a good day today, full day. I've had altar server trainings. Um, actually, I've had several this week, we, but today was the altar server boot camp that we've been uh, advertising. So it was for new servers. We had five young ones, like second, third, fourth grade, um, who've never served before. So they came here and for about two hours, we went through everything that I possibly possibly could teach them in uh, a relatively small amount of time. <laughs> so we, we practiced genuflecting, we practiced the different levels of bowing, we practiced, you know, turning, how, how to turn and <laughs> how to turn when there's two of you, uh, trying to get them to do those nice, crisp 90 degree turns, you know. We practiced the processions and all the different parts of the Mass. They learned to be acolytes, to be cross-bearers. Um, well, they didn't learn the thoroughfare part because there's so little. <laughs> so the older kids are going to handle that. I told them, well, I, I sort of, um, um, you know, as an incentive to keep serving, I said, if you get older, then you'll be able to, to do the incense one day. <laughs> but, uh, oh, it was a lot of fun. I had a great time the help of one of our sacristans and also the uh, the parents of these kids were there and there's some some wonderful families from here at St. Mary's who I know well. This is really a beautiful community. I'll be very sad to leave it. But uh, yeah, we had a wonderful time. The other server the other server training this week uh, also went well, but uh, you know, it had some issues. <laughs> one was there were a lot of, of kids who came. We had 11 servers and that was a refresher course for returning servers and so it was a large group and uh, also the time was shorter so that's not a good combination for this one we actually allotted two and a half hours and it took right around two for the other one we allotted only one hour <laughs> and it took a good hour and a half and there were still things that I had to cut that really they ought to have to have learned we should have gone over 
because although they are returning servers, you know, no, no one has served in a year and a half, so they're all rusty. And some things have changed, or, you know, they were taught by, at different times by different priests, and so it, it's not all consistent. So um, we have to kind of get everybody on the same page. That's always the difficulty, I suppose, in a parish. Um, but uh, anyway, so, but still it was a lot of fun. I got to do some different things with that bigger group uh, of older kids because they had some experience. So um, I, try, I tried to make it fun for them. I had them do a kind of a scavenger hunt where we had all the different you know, vestments and vessels and things for mass all set out just like it would be for a Sunday mass. And I had everything numbered and I gave them all a list. Or sorry, I had, I had everything lettered with letters from A to Z. And I gave them a list with uh, 26 names on it and they had five minutes and they could go around and they had to try to match the names of everything on their list to the actual items and put down the correct number to match with the name or the correct letter anyway <laughs> it was really a challenge the most anyone got was 15 out of 26 which is still pretty good uh, and then uh, based on who won that contest I had them split up into teams and so we had two teams of altar servers and that was kind of my way to try to get through things a bit faster, <laughs> but uh, with, with such a big group, and also to make it kind of a little competitive and fun. It went pretty well, but uh, yeah, I, I think with a group that big, definitely we, we, would need, we would have needed more time, or a second person there to help train. You know, we could do things concurrently, but it was really just me, so yeah, it was not ideal. Still though, it was a fun afternoon, and I think they learned most of what they'll need. And, um, you know, with serving, as with most things like this, you pick up a lot as you go. So I think I've given them a solid enough foundation that they'll be able to, we'll put them on the schedule and they'll pick things up as time goes on. But uh, yeah, th that has been a, a delightful part of my week. <laughs> and uh, each time at each of these trainings, and actually we'll have another one, maybe two coming up before I leave. But um, at each one so far, I've begun by asking the question, why do we have altar servers? And inevitably, they say, well, to help the priest. So I'll say, well, what do you, how, how do you help the priest? What do you do? And they'll say, well, we, you know, we hold a book and we carry things to the altar and et cetera, et cetera. And so then I say, well, do you think the priest really needs the help? <laughs> After all, we've had mass for the last, um, you know, 18 months or something with no servers at all. And so then they have to laugh and admit, no, he doesn't need the help. <laughs> and then uh, I, I uh, you know, we, we have a, a conversation about how the Mass is like an icon of heaven. And what goes on in the sanctuary, the sanctuary is like heaven on earth because Jesus is there, you know. And so what goes on during the Mass in the sanctuary is like an, an icon or like a play which gives us a, a window, a glimpse into what's always going on in heaven. And so we talk about how the priest represents Christ and he's giving himself out of love for us and that's Holy Communion. And then I ask him, well, what do you think the servers represent in this play, in this beautiful living icon of heaven? And they'll say, the angels, the saints. And I say, bingo, you got it. And so your role here, you're not just here to help the priest. Yeah, practically you do some of that. But more importantly, really, your role here is to make this a better picture of heaven. You represent the saints and angels. 
And when the people out there in the pews look at you and they see how you're serving, it should raise their hearts up to God, right? If they get distracted and then they see you and they see how, how holy you look, then that should remind them that they need to be praying too. You know, you'll be a reminder for them of the heavenly liturgy. And so I tell them, I need you to be like little angels. <laughs> and it's always kind of a joke. And I'll say, uh, I know if I ask your parents, then they'll tell me you're not little angels. <laughs> and they'll laugh. But uh, in the church, we need you to be like little angels, like little saints. And you go about your business uh, with great piety and reverence because that's really what the job is. You're not there just to get things done. It's not about being efficient. You're there to make things more beautiful, more reverent, so that we can lift our hearts even better to God. It's a big truck going by. So anyway, that's been a delightful part of my week. And uh, let's see, what else? We're still doing some ongoing pastoral planning, strategic planning for the future of the parish. And it's been very exciting to be a part of that. We had a town hall recently um, over Zoom which brought a lot of good feedback. So part of my work this week has been going back through the, the transcript, actually watching the recording of that whole meeting, and also going through the chat transcript and coming up with a summary, um, you know, noting all the ideas, all the feedback people had, grouping them into different major themes. That's all for the benefit of Father Ron, of course, and the Pastoral Council as they go on to, in their strategic planning efforts and also to help prepare for our second town hall, which will be next week, for the Hispanic community. So we're going to have a second one in Spanish. Father Ron wants to, uh, of course, be prepared as best he can with the kinds of things that came up at the English town hall so he can, uh, I guess, translate those into Spanish and learn um, you know, how to say his responses to those sort of common questions in Spanish. So I've gotten that prepared for him this week. I'm excited about that second town hall. Um, overall, just the whole strategic planning, pastoral planning process is exciting. Uh, it really is. And um, yeah, there's some great changes that are, that are happening here at St. Mary's in recent weeks. We had a staff meeting this week, which was, I think, the best meeting I've attended here the whole year that I've been here. And a major change really has been that we've started just praying together before the meetings. It's Father Ron's idea. So for 15 minutes, um, before the actual meeting starts, we go into the church and he will expose the Blessed Sacrament for adoration and maybe give us, you know, a little couple minute um, fervorino, you know, a little address. And then we just pray in silence and it gives time to just receive from the Lord. Um, it's a quiet listening prayer. And then he'll repose the Blessed Sacrament and we go into our meeting. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's been really good. I've noticed that just the kinds of interactions we're having in the meetings, this last one and the one before that, which was the first time that we had done this Eucharistic adoration before the meeting, the interactions we've had have just been much better. Um, people seem to be more grounded, more open. There's more laughter and uh, there's more honesty. And people are just sort of seem freer to just jump in at different times, so if one person is giving a report, another person will jump in and have a question. And I think actually that's, um, that's desirable, that's to be encouraged, because Father Ron is, 
is really pushing that he wants us to be not just a staff, but a team. And to me, like that's, man, that's what I want to hear. Like that's so, so inspiring and encouraging. That's the kind of leader that I hope to be uh, in a parish one day to forge a staff into a team who are united in a common mission. We're not just all there doing our own little jobs and our own little fiefdoms with our own little pet projects and whatnot. We're all united around a common theme, a common vision, um, a common mission to achieve this, the same goal. And we're all working together. People, yes, have their own um, specialties, you know, or whatever. Everyone brings their own gifts and everyone has their own responsibilities. But it's all united in the service of something greater, which I think is part of what is coming to be here at St. Mary's. Um, like many large parishes, and I've talked about this before, I think St. Mary's is, is typical in that there's just so much going on, sometimes it's hard to see how particular things serve the greater whole. And particular staff members or volunteers can be, you know, sort of very protective of their area, <laughs> of their thing. And it's, you know, that's like what they do and it's difficult to sometimes get them on board with like the whole mission, with the bigger picture. So it's exciting to see that happening now. Um, yeah, and, and Archbishop Sample has spoken about this. I heard a podcast recently. It's a podcast is called You Were Made For This. It's by Father John Ricardo uh, of I don't know what diocese. He's somewhere up back, back east. But um, the Archbishop, Archbishop Sample, was on that podcast. He had spoken at a, a retreat um, out in Missouri, and uh, Father John Ricardo, maybe that's where Father John's from, I don't know, but Father John Ricardo had him on the podcast to uh, speak about, yeah, his pastoral vision and what he's, what's happening here in Portland and what he wants to have happen. And again, very inspiring. The Archbishop um, spoke very candidly just about his weaknesses, <laughs> and he said, um, look, I'm speaking here as, a, as an Archbishop, as a leader of the church, I don't know at all. Like, I don't have everything together. And uh, so this is part of his, his leadership, like philosophy and his vision <laughs> for how to move forward as a church and what he's proposing to other leaders in the church, like at this conference and here within our own diocese, um, saying basically, you don't, you don't have to have it all together, but you have to, you have to have kind of this vulnerable leadership style where, you know, Amongst your team, you're encouraging, basically, you're, you're um, <laughs> like putting conflict forward. You're encouraging conflict. You're encouraging open dialogue. Like, let people interrupt you, you know. Um, <laughs> it's sort of very foreign for many of us in, in the church. Um, it's not natural. But uh, I think I'm seeing the, the beginning to see the fruits of it here. So that's all part of it, you know, conflict forward. Don't be conflict averse. Um, but encourage that healthy dialogue. Admit you don't know everything. And the other part of it is listening to the Lord, which Father Ron is modeling so well for us here. Um, the way that they put it on the podcast is listening to the architect, which I really like. And Archbishop Sample said very convictingly, um, and just sort of, it's a self-evident truth, <laughs> if you think about it. The Lord loves the church more than we do. <laughs> he is the, the architect. Um, he's the master. The church is, belongs to him, like that beautiful prayer that Pope Francis says, Lord, it's your church. I'm going to bed. <laughs> it's his church. He loves it more than we do. He wants it to prosper more than we do. So um, the best, the, really the best thing that we can do 
as church leaders, as ministers, as a team, is to set aside time before we act, before we discuss, before we plan, to listen to the architect. And then to bring forward what comes up for us in our own prayer, like to be, to be honest enough and to be confident enough in the Lord to bring up what arises for us in the depths of our hearts in times of quiet before the Lord, in listening to the Lord. Because He's the one who has the plan. He's the one. We have to model all of our efforts upon the plan that He reveals to us. Otherwise, we labor in vain. So those are just some things going on here that have been inspiring to me recently, and I hope they might be inspiring to you. Um, the direction that, the, that this parish is going, that the diocese is going, the Archbishop is leading us, to me is so encouraging. There's nowhere in the church that I would rather be right now than the Archdiocese of Portland. And that, to say that, I know that that's true, makes me so joyful, because <laughs> I think, wow, this, this is all part of the Lord's providential design. It's not an accident that I'm here um, in this place where great renewal is coming about. And in many ways, it's kind of an unlikely place. And the Archbishop also spoke about that on this podcast. He was sort of, sort of mentioning the divine irony. <laughs> if a, a great Catholic renewal was to come about here in Oregon, of all places, sort of the least churched place in the country, aggressively secular in many ways and, and anti-Catholic, really anti-Christian. If this became a place of great renewal in the church, uh, what a, a miracle, <laughs> really. What a sign that would be for the world. And so for that reason, I think God wants to do it. And, uh, and I think he is, he is bringing it about. So it's exciting to be a part of that. And yeah, that's, uh, that's what gets my heart fired up these days. So, um, great things happening here. I'm, again, I'm sorry to go. I'll be, I'm looking at going back to St. Pat's next month. And yeah, a professor <laughs> was texting me yesterday, encouraging me to sign up for a Greek reading class he's going to be having. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, that, yeah, I like that. I, I think I will sign up for it. Sounds great. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I have to go back into seminary and read Herodotus. <laughs> I want to be out here in the trenches, like doing, doing this work. Um, so I think that's a good sign. And I, I, I have to admit, even as I am contemplating going back, which I know is for the good because it's God's will. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a good sign because that the Lord has lit this fire in me to labor in the vineyard here in Western Oregon, that's a good confirmation of the vocation that he has for me. If I was, if I had no desire to stay <laughs> and was thrilled to go back just to study, that would probably be a red flag. So that's very much not the case. I wish I could stay longer. I'm sorry to go. At the same time, I know I'll be happy when I get back to my studies because I love to study. I love reading Greek and <laughs> all that sort of thing. And there'll be great classes I'm taking this fall. So. Yeah, that'll all be good, but I will certainly miss St. Mary's. All right, now enough about that. Let's get on and talk for a few minutes about J.R.R. Tolkien in this week's readings from The Silmarillion. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. 
throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. Guys, I'm a little bit worried because my battery was at 10% when I started recording and I just looked, now it's at 5%. So, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to try to keep this short, otherwise I might get cut off unexpectedly before the podcast is done. So let's just jump right in. This week in The Silmarillion, we read two chapters. The first one is entitled The Fifth Battle. And uh, this is not, this is not a success. None of the battles have been a victory, of course, as we've talked about. Um, Tolkien writes that the, the sons of Feanor, the elves, and the, the forces for good in Middle-earth are really fighting the long defeat. And this is another chapter. The fifth battle, uh, several days in, it comes to be called Nirnaith Arnoidiad, which means unnumbered tears. So what happens is uh, Maithras, one of the sons of Feanor, uh, he's encouraged by the story of Beren and Luthien and how they came to steal a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth. So he begins trying to unite all the elves and men and dwarves in Middle-earth to fight against Morgoth. He recognizes that Morgoth is not unassailable. He's, he's actually, he can be defeated. So he's encouraged, but he also knows that if they just keep fighting one by one on their own, that Morgoth will pick them all off one at a time until no one is left. Their only hope is to form a united front, a common league to make war upon Morgoth. So that's his goal, but he's only kind of partially successful. And I think a, a lesson that we can draw from this, and certainly a theme that we see here, is that, uh, oh, how shall I say, maybe um, man's efforts, or elf's efforts, <laughs> so to speak, at unity are, I don't know, um, I don't want to say doomed to failure, because there is a certain success. but. Uh, yeah, our, our efforts at unity, sort of by our own production, by our own engineering, our own ingenuity, um, can only go so far. And they don't last. And uh, we see that here in this chapter. There's a very moving sentence where Tolkien says that um, neither by wolf, nor by Balrog, nor by dragon would Morgoth have achieved his end but for the treachery of men. So we see even as, you know, Mithras is trying to form this alliance, well, there's many who are not eager to join it and, uh, and uh, others who he, they don't want to join it. The sons of Feanor in particular are, um, you know, very haughty and sus suspicious is too weak of a word. They're really uh, inflamed with anger and jealousy toward Thingol because Baron brought back one of the Silmarils to him. He's not one of the sons of Feanor, and the sons of Feanor, you know, are, are putting everything on the line to get those Silmarils back. So they're not happy that another elf now has one of the three Silmarils. And they're demanding it back, and Thingol, for his part, well, he's enraptured by the love of it, and at what cost it was won. And so he's not really willing to give it up. So we see, you know, there's these, these fault lines uh, between elf and elf, between elves and men, elves and dwarves. And this is Morgoth's specialty, sowing seeds of division, as we've talked about, amongst the free people so they can't come together. Or that when they do, 
there's always this undercurrent of suspicion and treachery and jealousy and all these sorts of things, which means that their union of its sort of of its very nature a priori um, is only a temporary, a kind of a, a, a um, you know a union of convenience, right? And at a certain point, it will break apart because the allied parties each have their own different goals, um, their own their own desires, which they're seeking to fulfill. And sure enough, that's what happens. And, and the treachery he speaks of is, well, a certain group of men allied with Mithras end up uh, turning on him to serve Morgoth because he's promised them a certain reward. Well, no surprise, in the end, Morgoth turns on them and uh, they don't get half of what was promised. They're, they, he keeps them sort of, he's promised to give them free reign over these lands that were possessed by the elms when the elms were all destroyed. And instead, they're kept in this little region where they're sort of free to plunder and, and wreak havoc, but uh, it's not a very desirable place and it's not half of what they thought they would get as a reward for their treachery. So that's basically the story of the fifth battle. Um, everyone dies. And, uh, well, not everyone. One uh, warrior in particular named Hurin is taken captive by Morgoth and placed up on a high, rocky tower of Thangorodrim. Uh, is that it? Is it Thangorodrim? I forget. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. Morgoth's uh, um, fortress. And um, he's one who Morgoth particularly hates. And so he places him up there in chains and his doom is that he'll be set there until his life ends, basically, without hope of escape, to watch all, everyone he loves be destroyed, everyone and everything he loves just be wiped out. Other than him, pretty much everyone dies. Uh, but at the, interesting, at the end of this chapter, Morgoth commands the orcs to make a pile of all the dead, and they form this big hill that can be seen from way far off because so many have been slain. But Tolkien says that it, this, this hill in the middle of Anfauglith, which is the ruined land, uh, sort of outside the gates of, of Thangorodrim, which has been basically burnt to, to nothing. It's just a ruined wasteland. Well, in the midst of all that, this pile of the slain of elves and men, uh, grass begins to grow there, and it grows long and green. The only place amongst all that wasteland that anything alive is you know, permitted or is even able to grow and no servant of Morgoth ever again set foot there upon that hill. And so there's something beautiful in that, isn't there? That out of great destruction, out of great defeat, comes forth life. A beautiful gospel theme, a note of grace there in the midst of this tragedy. So then we get to the next chapter, which is um, of Turin Turambar, an epic tragedy. This is the short version. We'll get the longer version later in uh, a story called The Children of Húrin, which Tolkien says in uh, this chapter, he says, It's the longest of all the lays that speak of those days. But here that tale is told in brief, for it is woven with the fate of the Silmarils and of the elves, and it is called the tale of grief, for it is sorrowful. And in it are revealed the most evil works of Morgoth Bauglir. Hmm, so this is not a particularly fun chapter to read either. <laughs> it centers around Túrin, who is the son of Húrin, 
And we also hear a little bit about Tuor, who is the son of Huor. <laughs> That's easy enough to remember. <laughs> Huor and Hurin were brothers. Huor was killed in the fifth battle. Hurin, you remember, was taken captive and put up on that high rocky tower by Morgoth. And their sons were born. Um, I can't remember where now, um, but in some safe elven place far away in the north. Um, now, uh, Hurin's wife, uh, Turin's mother, is Morwen, and Turin's sister, uh, the, daughter, the, the daughter of Turin and Morwen, is Nienor. Now, Morwen ends up sending Turin to live in Doriath, so she sends him away because she fears it's not safe anymore in the north, where orcs are starting to make incursions. So he goes off to live there and... Well, listen, I'm not going to summarize all this story, but um, a few things stand out. One is that, so he, he becomes like an adopted son to Thingol, um, but in the end, he, he sort of, he, well, whether it's by accident or not is not totally clear, but he commits a murder uh, to, for which he was certainly provoked. And it seems like it wasn't intentional. But anyway, he goes into this self-imposed exile. And he's told that his crime will be forgiven, he can come back, but he, he won't. So he's in this self-imposed exile, he's living like an outlaw. He ends up being eventually taken captive by orcs. And then his great friend, Bereg, comes to rescue him. Uh, but when he takes him out of the orcs' camp, um, well, all of a sudden, Turin wakes up, and he goes into a frenzy, and he thinks Bereg is an orc, and he slays him. And then, in the light of the moon, he sees his friend's face, and he's stricken almost to madness with grief. So then, he gets taken back to uh, another place by this other elf, Gwyndor, who was traveling with Bereg to rescue him. And Gwyndor, I forget where he's from, but... You know me, I can't keep track of all the names, but he ends up taking um, uh, Turin back with him to his home, where Turin becomes accepted and, in fact, is greatly revered and honored for his battle prowess. And, uh, um, well, Gwyndor's own sort of betrothed um, ends up falling for Turin, and uh, so there's some drama there. Uh, but it, it, you know, it, it, that doesn't end well. Nothing ends well for Turin. <laughs> Eventually, Morgoth attacks this place, and Turin gives some bad advice, and his strategies are foolhardy, and he's hot-headed, and anyway, the place ends up being taken over by Morgoth, and uh, this, uh, this elven maiden, uh, Finduilas, is taken into captivity, and Gwyndor is killed. So, uh, the uh, recurring theme is that uh, Turin's friends and everyone basically who loves him um, end up getting killed. He's not really a safe person to be around. And then the interesting thing that happens here is that we have an encounter with Glaurung, this dragon of Morgoth, who comes, you know, he's sort of the, uh, the great weapon of war that Morgoth has created. You'll remember in an earlier chapter, uh, one of the first battles, he came out too early, he wasn't mature enough yet, and the elves drove him away, but now he's strong enough that he's almost undefeatable. He also has this interesting power that um, if someone looks straight into his eyes, he kind of gains, 
he, he gains dominion over their soul, it seems like. And so um, Turin looks into his eyes and Glaurong holds him there spellbound. And then he whispers these words to him. Evil have been all thy ways, son of Hurin, thankless, fosterling, outlaw, slayer of thy friend, thief of love, usurper of Nargothrond, captain foolhardy, and deserter of thy kin. As thralls thy mother and sister live in Dorlomin, in misery and want, thou art arrayed as a prince, but they go in rags, and for thee they yearn but thou carest not for that. Glad may thy father be to learn that he hath such a son, as learn he shall." I thought this passage was so striking because, um, <laughs> you know, there's much, I think, that we can learn in the area of spiritual warfare <laughs> from the Silmarillion and the endless wars the, that they fight against Morgoth. And Glaurung here shows, he illustrates for us in a, a remarkable way, the voice of the father of lies, right? And it's interesting because he speaks some truths, like we can detect, yeah, there's some truth in what he says, but it's cast in this false light and it's tainted with his contempt for Turin. And in the midst of even the true things he says, he plants these seeds of falsehood that are meant to lead him astray. And it also it preys on Turin's own, um, his own wounds, you know, his own grief. He, he was almost driven mad by grief over the accident by which he slayed his friend. And also, you know, he grieves for this, this other one that he killed a long time ago that sent him into exile. And now for the loss of Thranduil and... and Anyway, so you, you get the picture. So that's exactly where Glaurung attacks. That's exactly where he attacks. And he says these, some true things, like he's a, a, a what does he say, a foolhardy captain or something. But, you know, he's made mistakes. There's no, no question about that. So he's preying upon his own insecurities, if you want. And then in the midst of it, he plants this total lie, which is, your mother and sister are living in thraldom, in rags, in poverty and misery. And so Glaurung allows Turin to escape. And Turin, of course, goes to rescue his mother and sister. But what he learns is that his mother and sister are not living in poverty as slaves, but that earlier when he was doing great deeds of bravery and all of Morgoth's forces were occupied trying to fight him, his mother and sister escaped to safety in Doriath, and they're living there now with Thingol and Melian. Now, while Turin is off finding this out, and he's been led totally astray by Glaurung, well, then Thranduil, is that her name? This elf maiden? Man, I'm so bad with the names. No, not Thranduil, Finduilas. <laughs> totally wrong. Finduilas ends up getting killed, and then he, go, he goes after her, and then he learns that she's been killed, so he's always arriving too late wherever he goes. And then there's this amazing Shakespearean, really, twist at the end. If you've not read this story yet, fast forward a few minutes because I am totally going to spoil it. So fast forward like three minutes. But if you've read it, you know what I'm about to say. Um, his sister, Nianor, comes forth. Actually, his, his mom and his sister both go out seeking after Turin now. 
and the mother, Morwen, ends up being killed. Nienor is captured by Glaurun, and he looks into her eyes, and he erases all her memory, so she doesn't even remember who she is. She ends up then meeting her brother, Turin, without knowing him, and she falls in love with him. And Turin, since she doesn't even remember her own name, he calls her, um, instead of Nienor, he calls her Niniel, which means tear maiden, because she's always weeping. And they end up marrying, and she conceives a child. Now, towards the end of the story, um, again, spoilers, I hope you're not listening to this if you haven't already read it, uh, Turin kills Glaurung, but it says the black venomous blood of the dragon spills upon him and he sort of, he seems to be dead. He falls into this stuporous state. And then Niniel, or, or um, Nienor, more correctly, comes and finds him there. And Glaurung sort of with his dying breath reveals the truth to her about who she is. And all her memories come back. And she recognizes that her husband is her brother and he lies there dead. And so she says, woe for you twice, beloved. Um, and she casts herself over a cliff and dies. But that's not the end because then Turin, of course, this is so Shakespearean, like Romeo and Juliet. Turin wakes up, he hears the truth. At first, he doesn't want to believe it. He actually kills another of his friends because he thinks the friend is making it all up. But then he recognizes it is true, this was his sister, and now she's dead. And he ends up killing himself on his black sword that has wrought so much misery and taken the lives of friends and foes alike. And thus ends the story of Turin Turambar. Now, I must say, I'm not sure um, what could be omitted from this story. I mean, <laughs> Tolkien tells us there's a longer version of the tale, and I don't know what more could be in there, but um, it'll be exciting to read it. This is one of my favorite stories we've read so far. I think it's second to Baron and Luthien. But this story of Turin Turambar, I found immensely captivating, very beautifully written. Of course, it's a, it's a great tragedy. It's heart-wrenching. The twist at the end was unexpected, <laughs> certainly. And uh, yeah, I very much enjoyed it. Um, and not least because of the sort of insight <laughs> I think we can gain from paying attention to Glaurung's sort of deceptiveness, the ways in which he preys upon uh, poor Turin's, you know, insecurities and wounds in order to manipulate him into going the wrong way. But with Turin, the question is raised, as I know we've talked about before on at least one or two occasions with Shakespeare, of the role of fate in uh, human lives, or elven lives. <laughs> That'd be different for elves than humans. Because after all, Tolkien says many times that a great doom is laid upon Turin Turambar. In fact, um, Gwyndol, is that his name? Gwyndor warns his betrothed, Finduilas, away from Turin, saying something like, no, no good can come of love between elves and mortals, save in rare cases when the Valar have laid some doom upon a mortal um, and they permit this sort of great exception, you know, like with Beren and Luthien. But he says, Turin is, is no Beren. Um, in other words, he, he's not one who has some great destiny arranged for by the Valar. 
a doom lays upon him, but it's a kind of a curse. And we see how that plays out in his life, which is sort of a litany of failures. However, um, not everything is a failure. And after he learns that his mother and sister were able to escape because of the great successes he was having in war elsewhere in the country, he says uh, of his earlier deeds, then those deeds wrought not evil to all. And after all, he does kill Glaurung in the end, and so there's real successes and victories that come from his life. But I don't know, it makes me think about Tolkien and that quote about the Blessed Sacrament in his letter to Christopher where he says, um, oh, I, I can't remember the exact quote. In fact, I, I think I have it saved. I know I have it saved. I, want, I wonder if I can pull it up before my battery dies. <laughs> Do you remember what I'm talking about? He gives this beautiful comment to his son about the Blessed Sacrament. Um, it's here near the beginning, I know. It's one of these bookmarks that I made in my Kindle. Uh, here it is. Out of the darkness of my life, he says, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the Blessed Sacrament. And so I, the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, that reminds me of Turin Turambar. <laughs> oh, his life is one dark frustration after another, and yet, like with the, uh, the battle upon Anfauglith, which all seems lost, and then literally out of the mound of slain bodies comes forth life, new grass. Likewise, out of the tragedy of Turin Turambar comes forth some victories which we can see now and maybe even unlooked for, victories and fruits later on. Again, I don't know. I haven't finished reading the Silmarillion yet. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll see it in the, uh, the longer version, The Children of Hurin. Anyway, that's my take on this week's readings. And again, this last chapter I most thoroughly enjoyed. Now, okay, my battery's down at 1%, so I'll tell you what. I'm going to go inside, plug it in, and continue the podcast from my office. Next on the list, we'll talk a little bit about today's saints in the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. All right, I'm in my office and the, uh, the phone is plugged in here so it can hopefully charge up and not die or lose anything that I've done so far tonight. I think I made it here just in the nick of time. <laughs> and you know, it occurred to me as I was walking back here, thinking about uh, the saints in the extraordinary form, the traditional Roman calendar, um, and why I have tra traditionally, <laughs> no pun intended, on this podcast, spoken about those saints in preference to the saints of the ordinary or revised Roman calendar. In part, it's because I record this podcast on Saturdays, and I, I just realized I've usually gone to the Latin Mass, the traditional Latin Mass, on Saturdays, um, both in the seminary when uh, I, I've been at St. Pat's. We have a TLM on Saturday mornings. And then since I've been home for the pandemic, in the months that I was in Rosebury, I'd go to Cottage Grove for the Saturday morning Mass. And now here at St. Mary's, we have an evening Latin Mass on Saturday nights. And so... Um, 
that it makes sense anyway why on Saturdays when I record the podcast, I'm kind of living in a traditional Latin mass, extraordinary form mode. <laughs> Even though, as I've mentioned lately, I've been praying the ordinary form bravery, so it's a little bit more of a challenge to uh, get back in and read about these saints on the traditional calendar. Anyway, that's just a bit of inside baseball information that I was thinking about as I made the trek back here to my office. Today on the traditional calendar is the very interesting feast of Saint Felicity or Saint Felicitas, Felicitas, Felicitas in a proper, you know, Italian accent, and uh, her seven sons, the seven holy brothers. So this is Truly, this is called the Feast of the Seven Holy Brothers um, in, the, in the Roman calendar. Now, their story is an interesting one, and I think I may have spoken about it in a prior episode, maybe last July? Um, I'm not sure about that, though. But um, it seems like this is one I might have spoken about before on the podcast, so stop me if you remember it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Seven Holy Brothers. The story here with Saint F Felicity, who, by the way, I believe is, is not the same Saint Felicity that we honor in the Roman canon. Here in the Eucharistic prayer, we pray for the intercession of Saints Felicity and Perpetua. Those are two virgin martyrs who I believe were killed in North Africa. Please ignore that text message tone that I just got who were killed in North Africa under the reign of Marcus Aurelius. This Saint Felicity was not a virgin martyr. She was a widow and a mother, of course, because she has seven sons. And um, the martyrology says she was a pious Christian widow. She lived in Rome, who and she devoted herself to charitable work and converted many to the Christian faith by her good example. Um, this aroused the wrath of pagan priests who lodged a complaint against her with Emperor Mar Oh, Marcus Aurelius. I suppose it was at the same time. Interesting. Um, these priests asserted the ire of the gods and demanded sacrifice from Felicitas and her children. The emperor acquiesced to their demand, and Felicitas was brought before Publius, the prefect of Rome. Taking Felicitas aside, he used various pleas and threats in an unsuccessful attempt to get her to worship the pagan gods. He was equally unsuccessful with her seven sons, who followed their mother's example. Before the prefect Publius, they adhered firmly to their religion and were delivered over to four judges, who condemned them to various modes of death. So this was actually from the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia. The Martyrology says, uh, of the seven sons, or brothers, um, depending on your perspective, <laughs> their names are Januarius, Felix, Philip, Silvanus, Alexander, Vitalis, and Martiale, or Marshall. And uh, so Januarius was scourged, um, much like our Lord, and died in the process of scourging, as well as Felix and Philip also uh, were killed in the same way. But Silvanus, however, was thrown off of a cliff, and then the younger ones, Alexander, Vitalis, and Marshall, were all beheaded. Uh, they were condemned to beheading. And in the end, Felicitas, Felicity herself, also was killed. But by her own request, she died last. Because she, it says she implored God only that she not be killed before her sons, so that she might be able to encourage them during their torture and death in order that they would not deny Christ. Isn't that 
astounding. And so it's said that St. Felicitas, or Felicity, died eight times, of course, once with each of her sons, and finally her own death after them all. Um, this story of St. Felicity and her seven sons, uh, it's uh, interesting. Well, one interesting feature of it is it mirrors this story of the seven holy Maccabees and their mother. If you remember, I think it's in the second book of Maccabees. Um, Antiochus IV Epiphanes has ordered the Jews to prove their loyalty to him by consuming pork, which of course is forbidden. And so th this is a time of Jewish martyrs because um, those, you know, the, the, the devout Jews who are given this order, of course, would refuse to eat pork. And so if they hold fast to that refusal, then they're put to death. And so, um, yeah, this, uh, this, this foreign king, Epiphanes, uh, orders each of the seven sons to be killed. And uh, their tenacious, stoic mother stands by and watches each one martyred. And it says, uh, in Maccabees, it says, She watched her seven sons die in the space of a single day, yet she bore it bravely because she put her trust in the Lord. And in the end, the mother died. But uh, it, it says at the end that they are dead under God's covenant of everlasting life. So I mentioned this story. It's sort of a bleak story, isn't it? Um, some of these accounts of early martyrs, uh, they, I don't know, they, they test our hearts, don't they? To me, at least, this one um, seems particularly tragic. It's a, a, a heart rending sort of a tale, right? To think of this mother watching each of her sons go to their death and she stands by encouraging them, encouraging them not to deny the name of the Lord, but to suffer what they must. But of course, the reason that this truly supernatural feat can occur, that a supernatural love can uh, surpass even a mother's natural love for her sons, um, which would, of course, urge her to protect them by all means necessary. But even that natural love is surpassed by the supernatural love of knowing and desiring Christ and of her belief that together they would come to be reunited very shortly in the eternal homeland. And that this natural, this worldly life, which is fleeting, it, the psalmist says it lasts for 70 years or 80 for those who are strong, and then we are gone like grass that withers in the heat of day. Well, this mother, knowing well that this earthly life is a fleeting gift, that eternity is long and life is ever so brief, urges her sons on to a glorious, the glorious triumph of martyrdom by which they can be assured that they will be together in the heavenly homeland. So if we see it from this correct perspective, from the perspective of eternity, we recognize that this is not, uh, there's, there's something truly noble and heroic about the sacrifice of each of these sons and in particular of the valor and the sacrifice of this holy mother, St. Felicity, who really, like the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, stands by and watches her sons in agonizing torment and it must be said that a sword, the sword of suffering pierces her own heart, perhaps even more deeply. Um, 
but she endures all knowing that the victory and the rewards of their victory will far surpass their sufferings. So she is a wonderful model for us to venerate and to imitate. Um, Saint Felicity and the seven holy brothers pray for us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. I just want to conclude today's podcast on that, that note of St. Felicity and the Seven Sons longing for heaven with a few words about desire. I've been reading a great book recently. It's called Aptly Desire by John Eldredge, who's a Protestant theologian and spiritual writer who's pretty well known. I've heard, I've heard his name frequently enough from, you know, other, from Catholic speakers and uh, from Catholic sources that I decided he'd be worth checking out. Actually, um, I say that, but more than that decision, uh, when I was in a Catholic bookstore recently in Santa Rosa, I, w- I was picking up all these used books and I happened to see this book, Desire, by John Eldridge. And by then I'd heard his name several times. And I just felt a prompting from the Holy Spirit to pick this book up. And so I've made it my spiritual reading for the last couple of weeks. And let me tell you, it's been very powerful. I wholeheartedly recommend it. There's nothing in this book contrary to the Catholic faith. There's much in this book that is of value for us to consider. Now, I want to begin this short reflection on Desire just by remembering a professor of mine, who had a big influence on me, Father Thomas Kohler of the Order of Discalced Carmelites. And I used to, I remember that he used to say um, often enough that it, it was kind of a, I don't know, it was one of his hallmarks, one of his little sayings, that today we have plenty of Stoics and we have plenty of addicts, but what we need are mystics. Now, again, we have plenty of Stoics, plenty of addicts, but what we need are mystics. And I always found that so compelling. I wasn't sure exactly what he meant. Um, you know, you, I mean, you can get a sense of it. The Stoic is one who's kind of unmoved by anything. The addict is one who's sort of hopelessly enslaved to pleasures, to his own desires. And the mystic, of course, is one who is in love with God and who's caught up in the divine romance. So I always found this to be a compelling saying, and I liked it. But I think I've gotten the deeper understanding of what he meant by reading this book, Desire. John Eldridge, at a certain point, he says this. He says, we have three options in life. To be alive and thirsty. To be spiritually dead, that is, desiring nothing, and therefore despairing of life. Or to be addicted, desiring nothing the wrong things, basically. And he concludes that little section by saying, most of the world has chosen addiction. Most of the church has chosen death. (laughs) That's pretty striking. And in another place, he adds, we kill our desires and we call it sanctification. So I just found this to be um, sort of an eye-opening I don't know, approach and an interesting way of looking at 
at the question. We're talking about these three options, these three ways of being alive. What he's getting at here is that within the human heart, there is an abyss of desire because the, the human soul is eternal. We were made for eternity, right? We're made for heaven. And so within us, there's a depth of desire that, that put it another way, there's a thirst in us that no earthly waters can quench. We are made for something beyond the limits of this world. And so he says in another place in this book, a quote that I particularly liked, he says, we can be satisfied, we just can't be satiated. And that really rings true with me. I don't know about you. We can be satisfied. Think of, oh, the satisfaction of a, a long, uh, deep conversation with an intimate friend. Or the satisfaction of a good meal, a beautiful sunset, you know, things like this. Um, they give our hearts deep rest and they, they answer in a deep desire within us. We can be satisfied, but we can't be satiated. We can't be satisfied to such an extent that the desire goes away. And so he uses the example of an intimate conversation and he says, you know, how, what a gift it is to have one, but how monstrous it is to seek to have one the next night and the next and the next, you know, to keep going after it, to try to, to, to cling on to and to possess this thing that gives joy to our hearts. It ends up sickening us. And we find that with all even legitimate pleasures and good things in life that satisfy when we try to make them satiate our hearts, then they become monsters and we become enslaved and our hearts are sickened and then we become addicts. <laughs> and so um, interest, an interesting section in this book also, he holds up uh, Buddha and Jesus. <laughs> now stay with me. Okay. He's showing us um, the great model of stoicism, uh, the Buddha, and he holds up Christ as the model of holy, holy desire. So in this section, he's actually quoting from another author, and this author's name is, um, oh, I have it here, um, R. Kent Hughes, and he writes commenting on Luke's gospel, another Protestant commentator. I don't know much about him. I don't endorse him because I, I, I don't know anything, but I do like this little comparison from him that John Eldridge quotes. And so about Buddha, he says, quote, Buddha sits enthroned beneath the bow tree in the lotus position. His lips are faintly parted in the smile of one who has passed beyond every power in earth or heaven to touch him. Quote, he who loves 50 has 50 woes. He who loves 10 has 10 woes. He who loves none has no woes. He has said, his eyes are closed. And now he goes on to describe the Lord. He says, He who loves the world takes on the world's woes. Jesus stood before his disciples, eyes wide open, and said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. A short time later, eyes wide open, having made the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, he said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. And in the garden he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. 
And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And on the cross, having become sin for us, as St. Paul says, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then his eyes closed. The difference is this. Buddha's eyes closed to shut out the world. Christ's close, having taken it in. Now, that, that comparison, it sends shivers down my spine. It's beautiful. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in Buddhism, and I can't speak to, you know, how accurate maybe this portrait of Buddha is, but this does seem to be, I just did a little bit of research. This is a real quote from Buddha. He who loves 50 has 50 woes. He who loves none has no woes. And that is a, a typical, typically stoic position, right? Um, you don't want to let anything sway you. You want to be completely the master of your own passions. And it's sort of this, the well-guarded heart, right? That's sort of the goal of stoicism is to be, so that there can be no, neither sorrow nor joy that can penetrate behind the walls of your heart and, um, you know, sort of lead you in a, in a way you don't intend. You're to be entirely the master, the one in control of your own life. And so it's this, yeah, this, this path of self-control, self-discipline, by which you become untouchable, un, uh, unswayable. Um, and against that, we see this picture of Christ, who speaks of being in agony, in distress, um, we see, you know, his conflict, but also how he submits himself perfectly to the Father's will, of course. I would also add this quote from Luke 22, where Jesus says, With great desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That was a favorite quote of St. Therese, and I love it as well. It's a typically Hebrew way of speaking. With great desire have I desired. <laughs> It also echoes this verse from Elijah, by the way, that the Carmelites take as their motto, where he says, um, Zelo zelatus sum, uh, with great zeal have I been zealous <laughs> for the Lord, the God of hosts. Elijah was a man after God's own heart. And we see the heart of God revealed in Jesus, who, des who says, with, with great desire have I desired this moment. With great desire have I lived my earthly life, leading up to what? To my passion, to my suffering. Everything I've done has been leading to this moment by which I will finally give myself utterly over for you, my beloved friends. And so this point that John Eldridge makes about we kill our desires and call it sanctification, you know, this is, um, I mean, this is not what the church teaches. It's not what the spiritual masters teach. But I think it is a temptation that we ought to be aware of and we ought to face. And it is a false doctrine that sometimes we will encounter. Um, that the way to be holy is sort of to become a Christian stoic. <laughs> you know? And to just become sort of like a, I don't know, this, uh, this person who can't be swayed to form this heart that can't be moved. You know, there's a song that was popular when I was in high school, which was not so long ago, uh, and I'm looking it up now because I can't remember who sung it, but it's called um, The Man Who Can't Be Moved. Who's it by? It's by the script. I think they're still around. They're still singing. And he says, um, 
It's just it's this breakup song. So I'm going back to the corner where I first saw you. I'm just a broken-hearted man. How can I move on when I'm still in love with you? Etc. Etc. He's waiting on that corner. He says, I'm not moving. Policeman says, son, you can't stay here. I said, there's someone I'm waiting for. If it's a day, a month, a year, etc. Etc. So I'm not moving. I'm the man who can't be moved. That's basically the uh, the story of this song. Well, the the aim of stoicism. I mean, that's not a perfect example. I forgot what the song was actually about. <laughs> that's that's kind of a counterexample because this is a guy who's deeply moved by love, and so he's unwilling to shift because he's waiting for his beloved. But stoicism, in a different way, aims to make us men who can't be moved, can't be moved by any external passion or internal passion or external force. Just totally okay. That's the point. So. That's Stoicism. On the other hand, though, Christ shows us that he's the model of holy desire. And I think as Christians, sometimes we can, we can be afraid of our desires because so often they seem to be disordered or to lead us astray. And we don't want to be addicts. And we, so we're afraid sometimes that if we listen to our desires, we're going to end up um, straying from the path of sanctification. But we need to be aware that we can also far too easily, maybe more easily than we're aware, we can go the other direction. And, you know, virtue is always between two means, right? The other mean between two extremes. So if addiction is the extreme one way, stoicism is certainly the extreme the other way. So we need to be like Christ and follow the way of holy desire. And the problem for us sometimes, and maybe why we're wary of our desires, is because, you know, it's it's... We can sometimes think, well, my desires are too big. I want too much. Or I'm always, I want the wrong thing. Like my desires lead me, you know, towards things that are against God's commands or in excess of what I should be after, you know. Um, and against that, I would just hold up a quote from C.S. Lewis. The problem with us really, this is my commentary, then I'll give the quote. We think we want too much, but the problem really is we want too little. We settle for these worldly things. And maybe deep down in our hearts, if we're honest, we have to admit that we don't know if we really believe in heaven and that these deep desires of our heart can really be satisfied. That the God who made us out of love has also made for us a future full of hope in which all the desires of our hearts will meet with their satisfaction. If we're not convinced of that, then yeah, we'll settle for wherever we can find some little scrap of happiness here on earth. Um, but Lewis says, quote, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and wine and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's basically John Eldridge's point throughout this book. We have to have our hearts awakened to a real desire for heaven. And then, you know, we're not going to be Stoics and we're not going to be addicts. We're going to be mystics. To be a mystic, I think, this is my, my working definition now as I'm reading this book. To be a mystic is to live with the hunger, right? Not to, tr not to uh, shut it down. And not to settle, but to live with the hunger that we know can't be satiated in this life. To live in the truth that our hearts are made for heaven. And that this deep thirst at the heart of our being cannot be quenched in this world. But that, in fact, 
the very existence of that thirst promises an eternity of drinking from the spring, from the living source. It's a high calling, friends, <laughs> but uh, that's what the world needs. The world needs us to be mystics. The world needs, and that's what we need, right? If we're going to live life with a heart fully alive, we need to be mystics. We need to live for heaven, for eternity. So that's all I have to say for you today. Um, feel free, as always, to reach out to me with any questions, comments, feedback, uh, anything that this podcast might have sparked for you. In the meantime, I'm going to wrap it up here. i got to get back to the house in a few minutes for Compline with the priests. Then I'll edit this podcast, put it up, and i um, got to be up early tomorrow for the 7.30 Mass here at St. Mary's. Uh, it's uh, always a challenging Mass <laughs> to make it to. So, friends, I pray, may Almighty God bless you, protect you from all evil, and may he bring each one of you and me along with you to everlasting life. Amen. Amen.